You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. This week on the B&H Blog Explorer, we are going to be celebrating Wildlife Week. Of course, that's Wildlife Photography Week. And we encourage you to check out the many articles and photos on bird photography, shark photography, and safaris that are populating our site this week. For our part, we're going to be presenting select conversations recorded at Optic 2019, the outdoor and travel photo conference hosted by B&H and sponsored by Sony, Nikon, Godox, Canon, Fujifilm, and others. The set of photographers we welcome to the podcast this week are quite impressive, including Emmy Award winner Ron McGill, who moonlights as the communications director of the Miami-Dade Zoo. We're going to be joined by undersea specialist and founder of Meet the Ocean, Paul North, after a short break. We're also going to be joined by the Optic keynote speaker, National Geographic photographer Franz Lanting. But we're going to start off with Ron McGill. We are being joined by Ron McGill. Welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Hey, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here, man. Now, my first question is, I heard you speak earlier today, okay? Yeah. What were you drinking before you went up on there? I never heard anybody with so much you energy know, in my I, life. I got to be honest with you. First of all, I've never tasted alcohol in my life, and I've never tasted coffee in my life. Wow. But I get to go to places in this world, and I get to observe wildlife in this world that is the greatest adrenaline rush you could ever imagine. And the greatest thing about photography is every time I show one of the images that I took, it reminds me of when I took it. You know, that's the great thing about photography. It brings you back to that moment, that instant in time when your adrenaline was rushing. Mm -hmm. You know, my favorite saying in the world is this. Life is not measured by the number of breaths that you take. It's measured by the number of times your breath is taken away. And those images, those images, what they do is they represent those times when you kind of go, and you get your breath taken away. You know, I, I listen. All due respect to all the wedding photographers and fashion photographers and all those other, I'd freaking be suicidal if I was doing that stuff. Okay? I'd be suicidal. What do you really no, think? No, no, I'm serious. I would be <laughs> suicidal. God bless those wedding photographers. They go out there all the time. They go out there, you know, and they're, they're, uh, and they're taking pictures of people for their wedding. And they're, eh, is it going to make me look fat? No, I don't want to take a picture with him. Is it gonna, you know, animals don't ask me those questions. Okay? They don't worry about whether they're looking fat or not. Now, on the, on the negative side, I, you know, I can't tell them, hey, can you turn your head a little bit to the left? Or can you switch here a little bit? I, I got to work with what I got. But at the end of the day, you get to capture those real moments. There's nothing fake about wildlife photography in its truest form. Let me ask you, though, that, that moment when your breath is being taken away and you're, you're working, you're, you're shooting at this time, okay? Let me make something really clear. I've never yeah. worked a day in my life. Okay. Ever. Uh, <laughs> then you're loving life. You're, Ever. You, but you got your finger on the button and, you know, you're shooting. How does that kind of translate to the photography? I mean, do you know, all right, this moment is going to be a good photo because my breath was just taken away? Or could it be just, it could be a mundane shot that you're taking over the course of several hours that turns out to be the shot that you want to I got to be honest with you. I think it's a little of both. I think there are times you you hit the shutter and you go, man, I know that's going to be a great shot. You know, and there's times when you have this incredible action sequence and you're just holding the hammer down, man. It's just... And you don't know what you got, but you're yeah. crossing your fingers. Yeah. You get back to camp, you start looking through your images, and you go, oh, that's nice. That's, and yeah. then it's like, whoa, look at that one. Holy jeez, I never yeah. saw it. Oh, I can't <laughs> believe that. Look at this guy. It's something you yeah. never saw. You know, there's yeah. an old saying in photography. If you saw it, you missed it. You missed it. Okay? Yeah, 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 so all of a sudden, yeah. that's the great thing. And I, I tell people that all the time. I said, listen, I remember I was out there once shooting a sequence, and I just put the hammer down. I'm just like, and this one guy next to me, you know one of those guys? I want to get people really ticked off of me when I say this. But you know the guy who wears the photo vest, has got a patch and a pin from every national park and every place in the world that he's been, and he's got about $80,000 worth of gear, and he sits up there, and he's next to you, and you're going, duh, 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 and he shoots, and he goes, click, and he looks at you, and he goes, <laughs> and he goes, yeah, you know, know, that guy. You know yeah. when you know, when you're a real photographer, right. you'll hit the shutter at the precise moment instead of that spray and pray thing that you're doing. And I went, oh, excuse me. Dude, I've had enough of that pompous attitude where you can think you can predict the action of wildlife that in a split second you'll never see with your eye, but because the equipment is made the way it is today, it can capture those moments. Yeah. Don't be so freaking self-centered that you think you're better than your equipment. Yeah. Okay. I well, was just feel- expressing my opinion, that's all. 
<laughs> but how do you feel? I mean, you edit all your own work. I mean, I edit all my everything. own work. And do you get that that same or a, a version of that feeling when you're editing it? I when do. you see that shot? I do. That you might have I had do. when you're in the field. I do. Listen, I'm not the uh, brightest bulb in the chandelier, yeah. but a gift that God has given me is that I can look at an image that I took 20 years ago. And I remember where I was. Sometimes I can remember what it smelled like when I took that image. That's just a gift that I've been given. And again, I haven't been given very many other gifts. I'm not very bright. But it's just this one connection with photography. And that's the thing about photography. I try to tell people, man, listen, we're, we're so gifted now with digital photography. You know why? You know what the greatest invention in the world is? The delete button. Yeah. Because you can <laughs> shoot away. And if it sucks, you get rid of it. Yeah. But don't stop shooting. You're not, you, you know... Keep shooting, man. And, and the greatest teacher you have, in a way, really, is that LCD screen behind your camera. Because photography is subjective. No matter what you think. And I, and I know that because when I started photography, I started by getting all the magazines. You know, Pop Photography, Shutterbug, all those magazines. And they have those little contests and stuff that went on. And I'd look at the contests and I'd look at the winners and I'd say, some of them would be, wow, that's fantastic. But then I'd look at some of them and go, well, that's not so good. I could do that. If I could do that, it can't be that good. That's, right. what, that's the way I'd look at it. If I can do it, it's not that good. Okay? <laughs> so, so I started shooting pictures on my own. I started saying, let me start doing this and start doing that. Um, but the bottom line is this. You know, there are going to be those people, and I know people get all caught up in these contests, you know, where you get critiqued. Well, it's not sharp in all corners, and you're not doing the rule of thirds here. You're not, screw that. The first thing you got to worry about is whether the image makes an impact. What kind of emotional impact does your image make? If you show somebody an image, they look at it, they smile, they go, oh, it's a good image. Bam. I'm not saying it can't be made better, right. but that's a good image. Yeah. Made you somebody know, react. Yeah, you, you made got, yeah. somebody react. Yeah. That's what photography is about, yeah. connecting to something yeah. that's yeah, going to yeah, create yeah, yeah. an emotional response. Yeah. But you came at photography, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, there's a, always a, a, maybe a greater purpose to your photography too, right? Because of the work you're coming Absolutely. from. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a zoologist. Yeah, you came to it I with a purpose. I came to a zoologist. Yeah. I came into photography because I would write articles, conservation articles, to get them published in magazines. And I'd start submitting the articles and say, okay, we need some photographs to go with this article. If you want to publish, i go, okay. So I'd call the stock agencies. And they told me how much the photographs were in stock. And I went, what? I'll go buy my own camera and I'll learn photography on my own. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I started photographing these animals on my own so that I could augment my articles and get them published. Now, how long ago was this that you started doing this? About 25 years ago. Okay. So autofocus was already in and it was Oh, already... yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's why okay. I say, you know, when I'm asked... It was such a huge privilege to kick off this conference, Optic, to be the first speaker up there. I felt like, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm really not worthy because I think about the masters. I think about those guys who manually focused, who could walk into a, uh, uh, an environment and say, you know what, this is uh, 250 at F8 yeah. because they, their minds were meters. I can't do that. I've been spoiled by this technology that does all that work for me. Autofocus. When you look at these guys who were, they were getting sharp pictures of falcons diving at them in 1960, you go, how did they do that? Yeah. How did they do that? With film. With film where you got 36, 38 exposures most. I shoot that in three seconds. I'm going, holy crap, how smart Cameras didn't work that fast back then exactly, either, though. Exactly. And it's all, you know, even when you have the motor, these guys right. are doing this by hand. Think about where we've come in photography. That has opened the doors for so many people. But at the same time, let's not forget those masters, man. Those are people who really knew what photography was. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment when you realized, okay, this is not just, I'm not just taking the picture to save money on the stock or to, or to illustrate an article, but I really love what I'm doing. I love Absolutely. this aspect. Of it. Can you kind of pinpoint that moment well, to some degree? You know, it pinpointed the moment for me. I was working on a project with harpy eagles in Panama. And uh, I was up in a nest with a harpy eagle for the first time. Wow. This is 100 feet up, a nest wow. six feet wide, three feet deep. I'm sitting in the nest with the chick, the mother on an augmented branch on the outside. Wait, looking were you at sitting me. in the nest? In the nest. That's how big the nest is. Okay, I was in the nest with this bird. And... How did you introduce yourself? I'm just curious to know. <laughs> like you did this morning. I remember, I remember. I remember. I put my camera on a self-timer and put it out on the limb to take a picture of me with a wide-angle lens of me in the nest with this bird. And I looked at that photograph and I said, oh, my God, this is connecting what I'm doing here. And I showed that image to a school group when I got back home. And the kids went out and they did a, a marathon, a walking marathon to raise money for the Harpy Eagles because of what they saw in that image. And I wow. realized what photography does, it's a conduit to inspire people to care, okay? The, the sad reality is most people will not get the opportunity to travel into the rainforest of the Amazon or into the savannas of Africa or to the islands of the Galapagos. Or to that hill in Mexico to look at the butterflies. Well, freaking butterflies, man! There's freaking 100 million butterflies in a tree! You, I can't tell you what that was like. You get up there and you go, 
This is nature. And these butterflies have flown thousands of miles, never been here before, and are in the same trees that their ancestors were in, never having been here before. How does a bug know how to do that? Okay, this is what's cool about nature photography. You go out there, you photograph, and you're learning, and you're being open to the world. You never stop learning stuff about this. And as a photographer, I think it makes you a better zoologist, a better biologist. Why? Because you're really observing. You've got to observe. And vice versa, I think, being a biologist, zoologist, you know, in photography, you need to know your model. You need to know your subjects. And I think some of the best wildlife photographers are truly biologists and zoologists who have studied the behaviors of these animals, can anticipate a behavior. And there's an old saying that says the only thing predictable about wild animals is they're unpredictable. But that's true to a point. There are certain things that you can tell by watching behaviors of animals, what they're going to do, what they're going to think. And you can be prepared. You can have your, your hand in that, 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 that shutter release and get ready to go. I well, think a lot of that must become, like you said, from observing, from the time spent with yeah. these animals. How, do you, how can you translate that to somebody who is uh, on a tour, who's kind of doing it for the first, not even the first time, but they're, they're not out there putting in the hours? Uh, well, is there a way? I, I, is it possible? I, I, I would say that what you need to do is, first of all, understand behaviors of animals and understand that you want to be out there at sunrise and sunset. Mm. Uh, it's not only the magic hour for light, it's, it's when they're out. It's when the animals yeah. are most active. Yeah. It's That's when right. you're going to see things going on. Okay, it's uh, getting ready to, to greet a new day as a diurnal animal, or getting ready to become very active as a nocturnal animal. So these are things where you get to get to see the most behaviors. And the other thing I would suggest is, listen, when you find a good spot, you see a group of animals that you are interested in, just watch them for a while. Don't you know? I remember taking, which is why I don't lead tours anymore, because I would lead a tour. I remember I was in the middle of 200 elephants in Tanzania, and these with babies and mothers, and everything's going all around us. And I had four very affluent people that asked me to take them to Africa, and I took them to Africa, and they were having the time of their lives. When these elephants, 10 minutes, they're like, choo, 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 choo. Okay, great. Where are we going now? Like, what? Get them off the checklist. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It's like, okay, we've got, we've got the elephants off the checklist. So let's go find a leopard. This is not about checking off an animal on a list. It's about what behaviors are you going to see, okay? I remember staying around an elephant herd for about four and a half hours because they were just being very active. A lot of things were going on. There was a lot of electricity in the herd. I'm thinking, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, four and a half hours I've been sitting there photographing all the lights changing animals. You hear the screaming, and they're starting to trample around. A freaking elephant was giving birth. She was giving birth. It was one of the most electric, exciting times I've ever experienced in the wild. And I would have missed it if I left an hour after being there. But it's just waiting and see. You should never chase animals down. You should never, if you're on a safari in Africa, for instance, tell your driver, chase it down. Chase. If, you're, if an animal is reacting to you, you're doing something wrong. The objective in good wildlife photography is to be invisible to the animal. So you're getting the true natural behavior of the animal. And sometimes that takes a lot of patience. But you know what? For me... I love it because I can sit at a waterhole in Africa all day without anything exciting happening because I'm there. It's just, it, it, there's just something to say about that. My takeaway after listening to you this morning was that you get there and it's like, you just really miss machine gunning. You're taking zillions of pictures and editing it down. That's not the case because um, you actually do not just get there and take out your camera. You are absorbing Absolutely. and observing. And I know something that's come to me maybe later in life is that quite often I put my camera down because when I have a camera in front of my face, I'm no longer experiencing what's actually happening. And there are times I'll let a photograph go because I want to see this, but that's what you're actually doing to get to where you're photographing. And then you go nuts when it's happening. Absolutely. Like, you know, when I was photographing the monarchs, for instance, up in the mountains of Michoacan, I was photographing, I was like, oh, okay, I got some great pictures. And then I just laid down and I looked up and I go, Oh my God. Yeah. And I'm soaking. I'm going, Oh my God. It's just the trees a hundred feet up and just a million butterflies flying over your head. And I hadn't looked at that perspective. I just sat there and I soaked it in. And then I just said, you know what? I took my camera and I just went, choo, 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 and I put it back down and yeah. I just watched it again. Sometimes you just got to be there. It's just, it's just being in that moment. That's incredible. But at the same time, I did get my camera to get that so that I could remember yeah. when I laid there and just looked at it. By the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, but a majority of the monarch butterflies that you showed today were female. I don't know if you ever noticed that. I didn't notice that. Yeah, a majority. I would say eight out of ten of the butterflies you showed today were female. You could tell that from the photographs? Yeah, those Man, two I... little dots. You know what those dots are, don't you? Uh, those are the males. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, and by see. the way, I... <laughs> <laughs> I got a high-resolution camera. Good no, I, I happen to personally connect with that whole monarch thing because... 
early on uh, with my own kids, we have actually had monarchs land in our yard and lay the eggs on an, uh, milkweed. a milkweed. And we watch them grow and we bring them in and we they go into, in, into butterfly form. Right. And now my kids do it with their kids. And it is thing. the most magical thing you could do. It's the most amazing two weeks. Think about that transformation that happens there and how it's it fascinates unreal. kids. And then that journey that they take exactly. is phenomenal. It's like, it is insane. It is and, and insane. you'd mentioned some good news from the past year in terms of yeah. the numbers you want to talk about. Uh, yeah. This past year, they had 100 million monarchs come into Michoacan, which is the highest numbers in 15 years. Mm -hmm. So that's a positive aspect. Now, you know, there's a lot of things that have an influence on that. It's the weather. It's the, it's the, uh, the wind. It's storms. It's, it's. The milkweed, it's the crops, it's the, the There's the so many variables. There's if so storms are coming through, it blows them all over exactly. the place. Is, that, is exactly. it too early then to kind of point to some conservation efforts that have made a difference yet? No, or I, think it, I think it shows that conservation efforts have, have made a difference in the sense that they've been planting more trees in the places that were deforested. They've been planting trees. The trees are growing in. And also in the sense that milkweed, there's a huge campaign across the country. People planting milkweed. We, we, we planted it on our deck. It's we do. a great Great campaign because they're able they have able to to refuel themselves to make that type of migration. Now on the flip side, the western migration this year was the worst in over. I imagine the fire 20, and everything else fire just and devastated drought. it. Fire and drought. Now the western population west of the Rockies is only about a million monarchs uh, migrating. This year was only thirteen thousand. Wow! So that's a huge plummet. By the numbers. way, there were th I think three sources of monarchs. If there is the west coast, there is a central and the east coast. Yes. And they all kind of merge over Texas and then go south together. Except the West Coast. The West oh. Coast goes out to California. Ah, they okay. They go out to Santa Barbara and the, and the California. But the they other. don't have. That's right. They don't have to transfer in Atlanta. That's right. Yeah. So, real quickly, let's, I know you just got back from Antarctica. I did. And you also have a project in Botswana. Uh, I got a pro I got a project. I'm leaving to go to the Pantanal in, in oh, uh, Brazil. Okay. We're going to be tracking wow. jaguars. Okay. Jaguars, giant anteaters, and giant otters in September. Okay. Looking forward to that. I'm wow. going to be uh, using some new equipment there and seeing how that works. And how long is that trip going to be? Just a two-week trip. Two-week trip. Two-week okay. trip. Uh, right. I don't usually go for longer than two weeks. Okay. And what's the Antarctica trip or this uh, project? It was fantastic. We did a documentary for ABC on it uh -huh. where I bought a, a kid. I have a contest in South Florida. It's called the Eco Hero Contest where a kid is rewarded for doing something wonderful for the environment. It's a contest when the kid wins. I bring them to some incredible place in the world. I've taken kids to South Africa, to the Galapagos, to Machu Picchu. This year, I brought them to Antarctica, and we did an hour documentary, and it was fantastic. Just killer whales going after humpback whales, leopard seals going after penguins. Just And the landscape, you know, it's amazing to go to a place, and you can look at it, and it's the way it could have been a thousand years ago. That's what's incredible about Antarctica. Well, and uh, these are not, you don't photo at these times that you're, or you're taking pictures. Oh, no, I'm time. taking pictures like crazy. Yeah. Listen, yeah. I'm always <laughs> taking pictures. <laughs> Why would I have ever doubted that? <laughs> By the way, for listeners that uh, cannot take the time to run down to Mexico in February to photograph where all these monarchs come to, it's worth mentioning that I know here in the East Coast, from early September to early October, is when the migration happens, and they tend to go along the coast. And I know we often go to uh, along the Jersey Shore right. around Sandy Hook. That's right. And if you hang out there for a day, you could see swarms of them coming by, and they stop and they roost, and you can go right up to them yeah. and take pictures. And it's part it's of fantastic. their migration. And, and to think those animals have got about another fifteen to eighteen hundred miles ahead of them. That it's amazing. Fly. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. All right. Great. Yeah, okay. guys, yeah. it's been a slice of heaven. Thanks for the invitation. So if Thank people you, want to see your work, where should they go? Oh, geez, my website's down. Um, <laughs> so you can go. Uh, well, Nikon has me on their set as a Nikon ambassador. They have a page on. Oh, there. Okay. okay, Nikon right. ambassador. There you go. Yeah. That's important. Okay, All and right. it's Ron McGill, M A G I L L. That's me. All right, guys, thanks a lot. Pleasure to talk to you, man. Really Thank you. It. All right, thanks, Ron. Alrighty, we are back. Before we talk with Paul North, it's just a little special thank you to the sponsors of Optic uh, 2019. Uh, that includes Sony, Nikon, Canon, Fuji, Godox, Lexar, Sigma, Panasonic, Olympus, Robus, Adobe, and Tamron. Thank you all. And of course, B&H is the official sponsor of this yearly show. Is it the third year we're doing, I think? Yep. Yeah. And now we are being joined uh, by Paul North. And Paul is the founder of Meet the Ocean and the host of an educational podcast of the same name. So you're dealing with uh, 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 ecological issues, specifically the salt water. Yes. Is that correct? Bring us up to speed on that. Yeah. So Meet the Ocean is a nonprofit and our podcast is our main educational outreach. 
So we're interviewing experts and ocean advocates of all ages to get the story, bring it to the public, and just sort of add to the conversation so people can know what's happening. What's the seeds of this project? How did it all start? Well, I, I've been diving in the polar regions for about five years now, and not only what I get to see, but who I get to share it with, it has been pretty dynamic, and I thought that there was a lot of value in that. Mm -hmm. So instead of letting all that stay out to sea, I figured I'd grab some microphones and make it happen. So what have you seen in five years? I know there's supposed to be dramatic changes. Fat, things are happening quicker than they were predicted on all of the model forecasts. So what have you seen in five years, which is not a lot of time? It's not a lot of time. I would say the biggest changes that I've seen have been in Southeast Alaska, because we visit glaciers there. Right. And there you can actually have a visual of the receding glacier. But when I'm diving down in Antarctica, it's, it's so immense, it's hard to get a visual about what is and is not changing. Because the scale is so crazy. It is. But when you get in the water, that's when you can start understanding how things go. Because a, a good year for sea ice is a good year for krill. And basically everything in Antarctica eats krill. So that is a, a linchpin of the food chain. So good sea ice, good krill, bad sea ice, a low year for krill. So if the krill are having a bad year, then other species take over. They, they, they fill that niche. So if you're seeing a lot of these other species, specifically salps, these little gelatinous water pumpers, uh, they compete with the food source with the krill. So if there's a whole lot of salps, then you know it's a bad year for krill. And if it's a bad year for krill, then Antarctica is suffering. Hmm. And yeah, that is sort of like the basic granola or the food chain up there, and, and everything else tumbles if that goes down. Yeah, that would, uh, the term for that is a trophic cascade, when I, one piece gets removed. And, and is that something you've, you're noticing changing year to year, or is it a generally this, the, the trend is down in terms of the amount of krill, or it, what's your experience? It depends. You, you know, Antarctica is so large. Right. And so where you are, basically. Where we go is the, the peninsula. Mm -hmm. It's the easiest to access, and it is the most biodiverse place. So in doing so... Well, we get sort of an all-access pass to the life down there. But in terms of the changes that you see, you know, one big change that's visible from the surface is the amount of snow. So you're a penguin, you're a young penguin with these fluffy, downy feathers. You haven't evolved to deal with snow because snow will freeze and essentially turn you into an ice coat, which will hurt the juveniles almost to mortality, uh, or mortality event, I should say. So... Even though I've only been down there a few years and in both polar regions, there are changes and you see them. You do a lot of diving now. What kind of gear are you using? Because first of all, diving is a, is a whole different animal than photographing above the water. And now you're dealing with cold water, very cold water. Oh, yeah. So what, what kind of gear are you using and what kind of precautions do you have to take to make sure that everything is functioning? So on the camera end of things, we have a pretty handy setup. It is a Sony RX100. Ah, okay. A uh, little handheld, but it takes amazing oh, yeah. video. And when I screw on the macro lens, then the macro photography is amazing as well. So that goes inside a naughty cam housing, and then we have very bright LEDs. So that's what I'm using for the camera setup. I just actually got a new Olympus rig, which I'm, I'm pretty excited to keep testing out. On the dive gear end, you're wearing a dry suit. So that is essentially a, an enclosed air unit that you can put in a lot of wool layers to keep you warm. Mm -hmm. But you're also wearing dry gloves, which makes your dexterity to actually operate the camera equipment really hard. Uh, so those minute changes that a photographer always wants to make, I have to be a little bit more decisive about when I'm making those changes because it takes some time. And you have to factor in, is your subject going to swim away while you're tinkering with your gear? <laughs> right? um, but one of the safety things that we use, uh, it's called an H-valve, and it comes off the tank. And that way, we actually have two regulators. Because the water's so cold that one of your regulators that you're breathing in, because of the moisture in your mouth, it can actually freeze. And if, if it does so, then it just blasts air at you, and your tank can drain in one to two minutes. That's not a good thing. It's not, especially if you're like 70, 80 feet underwater. Uh -huh. So with the H-valve, you're able to turn one of the, the free-flowing valves off and still have a safety one, but you're not staying down after that happens. If you have a free flow, you're headed to the surface. Aside from this kind of uh, uh, air chaos <laughs> in the cold, are there any other differences between shooting, uh, say, 80 feet down 
up in the cold quarters, uh, like in Alaska or Antarctica, or in, in a, a more tropical uh, uh, environment where the waters are warmer and stuff. Is there a difference in visibility, the light and things of that sort? Yeah, definitely. So polar regions are more nutrient dense, so there's more life. There, there's more particulate matter in the ocean. So in the you, colder water. In the colder water, yeah. Interesting, okay. Yeah, cold water has more oxygen, and it also has a lot of upwelling, which is bringing deep ocean nutrients to the surface. Uh-huh. So that kicks off the food chain. But with that bioactivity, you're not getting a lot of clarity. That said, every once in a while, you'll get one of those days in the polar regions where you can just see forever. Uh, so it, it's a bit hit or miss, but sort of um, 360-type camera uh, work Underwater and Antarctica can be difficult because of the clarity. And a lot of what I choose to focus on is the up-close macro because I know I can get the good lighting. I know I can fully, you know, capture the creature behaviorally in the way that I want to. Now, when you say close-up macro, what distance is you actually talking from the front of the lens to whatever you're photographing? Uh, the, so we have an adapter that we screw on, which is to the 10th power. So you're getting very close, but in terms of like actual distance, probably three to five inches. Okay, because you're dealing with animals that, I mean, depends on what their interaction with people. Could be real skittish or they couldn't care less about you, I guess. Yeah, I'm really good at filming the stuff that doesn't move that fast. (laughs) (laughs) And and how much like physical dexterity do you need to to kind of photograph that close at something that is moving and it's cold or maybe you're not feeling the cold so much, but you know, your time is limited and is that something that you've had to practice physically and become more adept at over the years or is it it just getting there that is the hard part? Well, getting there is definitely the hard part, but keep in mind what, what I'm filming very often... I dive, film, edit, and present in the same day. Really? So it's, it's oh. lickety-split, and I might be diving at 10 a.m. and presenting at 6 p.m. So when I'm under there trying to create a product that I'm going to deliver to an audience under those circumstances is very intimidating, or at least it was at first. But you sort of develop a rhythm, and you're like, okay, I would love to film that creature, but it's upside down on the rock, so I'm not going to waste my time trying to get that very difficult shot. I can probably find that creature if I keep swimming again. So you're more selective with what you do. And you also have time limitations on you though, don't you? Absolutely. Severe yeah. ones. It's not like you're waiting for the light to get good. No. You don't have that option. No, often uh, you're providing the light with your camera. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's dark, it's murky. It's, it's the kind of cold that your brain starts to work against you. Like you're questioning your life decisions. Why wasn't I a lawyer? Yeah. Those kind of things. <laughs> uh, but I, I enjoy the challenge. And when I do find that moment down there, it, it's worth it. Yeah, it's worth it. Yeah. And I, from your talk, you know, you, you'd come from the arts, I saw, and then you were a commercial fisherman yes. for a while. Yeah. And, and uh, can you kind of give us the arc a little bit? And I guess my question that will lead from that is, you know, what's your take on photography itself? Is it a tool to say what you want to say? Or have you kind of developed it more to feel like it's something that in and of itself you're interested in? Good question. So uh, the arc of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, in you know, yeah, yeah, a yeah. minute. Cue up the music, <laughs> yeah, Jay. Indeed. indeed. Um, <laughs> I got my master's in creative writing. Yeah. Uh, Obviously. But back then, did you have this experience of, of diving, and or is this just no? I, did, I didn't dive till I was twenty five, so okay. it was later yeah. later in life. Right, right. Um, and because of that, you know, I, I kind of well jumped in headfirst, let us say. But after the degree, I had the student loans that I needed to pay, and I didn't want to. I went to Arizona State, so I didn't want to stay in the desert over the summer. Diving is terrible there. Yeah. So. How do you get a job in Alaska? You don't tell them that you're from New York, like rule number one, because they, they, have, a very, they have a specific opinion about New Yorkers. I bet, I bet, yeah. So I, I told a white lie, I said I could cook, uh, and I got a job on a fishing boat. Okay. Did that for many years, and that just tuned me into the ocean in a totally new, random way. And from that, I started scientific research, uh, volunteering mm-hmm. on tall ships that were teaching kids how to uh, basically study plankton out in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And then that led me to uh, National Geographic Expeditions, where I basically said, I can dive and I can film. And cook. And, and <laughs> kind of, kind of. I don't know if waffles count. <laughs> um, from a photographic standpoint, I mean, imagery is 
undeniable. We, we are visual creatures. It's how we've evolved. Um, you know, I, I just heard something recently that I found fascinating. There's a correlation between mammals, specifically primates that grew up, uh, that not grew up, but uh, were located in, in areas that were reptile heavy, that their eyes were more adapted to see the reptiles than, you know, mammals that weren't near snakes and stuff. So that sort of you know, how our eyes develop to pick out these details. I think that leads directly into our fascination with photography now. So what I'm trying to do with Meet the Ocean is, is catch people up to speed at not only what the ocean is, but the trouble that it's in. And I think the easiest way to do that is visually. And then, of course, I back that up with our podcast. Okay. How often is, did you, uh, is your podcast uh, come out? Uh, it, it, it does change because I'm often away at sea for about five months a year, but we try and release at least three episodes a month. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And that's all over. That's Easter Island. That's Antarctica. It, or it could be, you know, Montana. I, I ask everyone that I interview, when did you first meet the ocean? And, you know, that might be, well, my mother took me when I was two, but very often that story turns into, man, there I was. 20 years old, thought I knew what the ocean was, but then this happened. Wow. Yeah. And you kind of get those really juicy stories. Yeah, that's a great question because it can be taken many different ways and you can get that two-year-old story or who knows what, right? Yeah, that's exactly. wonderful. Oh, that's great. I don't know if we mentioned this up front, but you are also with Lindblad Expeditions and National Geographic Shooter. Yeah, so on board, uh, my role is undersea specialist which I always have to explain what that means. Uh, but basically, I am there on our expedition vessels to record what is happening in the areas we visit underwater. Ah, okay. Hmm. Well, Polar regions, a dive <coughs> normally is uh, regulated to about 45 minutes. And to be honest, I'm not going to argue for more time because by that point, I can't feel many of my appendages. Mm -hmm. so. and, and the people that go on the, the expeditions, some of them have probably never dived dive before or and, and you're, you guys are willing to go to let them get down and, and do some photography underwater or no? So yes but only in the tropics. Gotcha. Uh, you can imagine the logistical yeah. insurance nightmare about taking people diving in Antarctica. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. First timers. That That's not a good mix. <laughs> no. And when you're doing it for your, for your work do you have a team that you're always with? I mean you must have Partners and yeah. And, so uh, on the on the diving end, you always have a buddy. Yeah, and that's important. Um, very often, I'm leaning over filming a sea star with my macro lens, and I don't know that there's a 12 foot leopard seal behind me. Yeah, and my dive buddy lets me know. Yeah, and I'm like, why did you tell me that? Yeah, yeah. I was fine. I was peaceful. Yeah, right. right. So <laughs> no, now that's an interesting point because I mean, how many people do you usually have on each of these groups on the average? How many people are there? Uh, our ships range from 60 passengers to about 150. Now, does that mean that you have to have also 60 to 150 dive buddies? How does that work? What do you pair off divers? I mean, how does oh, that work? Because that's a big safety though. issue. No, so uh, just to a bird's eye view, the, the guests are there for above water experiences. Okay. Unless we're in the tropics. Ah, uh, okay. If we're in the tropics, right. then they're snorkeling, then they're diving. Okay. But when you're in the polar regions, they're just heading to shore or going out on a Zodiac cruise. Gotcha. Okay. If people would like to catch up uh, on the work that you're doing, what sites should they go to? Instagram, websites, what are they? Yeah, uh, both our Instagram and Twitter is at Meet the Ocean. Okay. Uh, no, no spaces. And our website is meettheocean.org. Mm -hmm. uh, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, so always looking for some help on that end. But yeah, we, uh, we have about 30 plus podcast episodes right now, and we've been downloaded in over 40 countries. So we're definitely getting the message out there. And you know, super happy to be here with B&H to present today. How would you define the message, I mean, of Meet the Ocean, and, and what is the goal? Uh, the, the goal is to use storytelling as a platform to convince people that more conservation efforts need to be taken. Uh, I very much believe that we have evolved to take stories in much better than just wrote facts. You know, our eyes roll in the back of the head if I just started listing things about the ocean off to you. As soon as, but, as, soon as the spreadsheets come out, you're dead. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we're also, you know, let's be honest, we, we all have things going on. We are a, a more impatient culture than those of the past. So <laughs> I'm, trying to, to put it. I'm trying to spice things up to make it entertaining, to make it comical when it's appropriate. 
but largely it's there to tell stories in a way that fills out the whole of the ocean. So if you can hear a story that's coming from the tropics and then all of a sudden you're in Chile and now you're in Denmark, that has a real value because it connects the dots of our planet. The ocean is, is not segmented. It's one, one flow. It might take seven years for a piece of water to travel all around our world, but it's going to and it's going to continue. So. All right. Wonderful. Very good. Uh, Paul North, thank you so much for joining us today and um, good luck on future journeys. Thank you. Yeah. Next up, Russia. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. When's that uh, happening? Uh, that's in August. Okay. Uh, and where? Where in Russia? So we're leaving Nome, Alaska and uh -huh. heading west. Uh -huh. So we're going to go to Wrangell Island, which uh -huh. is well north of the Arctic Circle and should be some pretty good diving. Wow. Cool beans. Yeah. Thanks, All right. guys. Enjoy. Thank you, man. Okay. Great. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. We are back. We've had many, many impressive photographers here. Some legendary shooters, Albert Watson, and I can go on and on and on, uh, Michael Kenna, uh, Stephen Wilkes. Today we have somebody who is really impressive, uh, Franz Lanting, and he is truly one of the great photographers of our time. Uh, he's f shot everywhere from the Amazon to Antarctica. Uh, he's done amazing books, amazing shows. He's a knight in the Royal Order of the Golden Ark and in 2018. Really? Yeah, wow. that's, I don't that's know anybody first. else who's, yeah. we have not, you are the first of that yeah. qualification. I want As you to a know. photographer, yeah. Okay, yeah. there yeah. you go. Um, and also, you were uh, honored, uh, I think, last year as the Wildlife Photographer of the Year, first Lifetime Achievement Award. Is that correct? That's right. Welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. So pleasure we, to be here. Would you define yourself as a wildlife photographer? If you, you had know, to? I'm, I've never been fond of labels. Yeah. Uh, no matter what your subject is, you still have to deal with equipment, you have to go through all the technical processes to capture images and these days in post kind of to make them look right and assemble them. And you have and to connect with your subject them. too. Exactly. So I think the labels are kind of irrelevant. Uh, you, it's, I work with animals a lot, but I look at animals the way other photographers look at people. You know, I regard them as individuals. And you have to pay them respect. You have to appreciate their lives. And the more understanding you have and the more respect you convey, I think the better your images become. I think that's really interesting that you talk about that. Um, you are more than a wildlife photographer. You do amazing photographs of a lot of different genre. Uh, but I really was caught on your photographs of animals, your eye-to-eye -eye project. And what struck me immediately is that you're photographing animals that are essentially predators that kill to survive, and that can be portrayed very savagely, yet they are the most relaxed, easygoing portraits of animals that I've yet to see. Uh, you have big, fierce cats that are just looking at you and just sharing a moment almost. It's, there's a very human quality to that. How do you do this? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you for saying... In 30 saying, seconds or less. In 30 yeah. seconds yeah, or less, yeah, yeah the elevator speech. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for saying that, Alan, because that's what I strive for. Uh, the kind of dramatized encounters don't really reflect the way I feel about animals. If there's not a photographer or a filmmaker around, they lead their own lives. And yeah, rhinos are not particularly belligerent if you... Uh, if you leave them alone. So why would you dramatize that in an image? So I like to let animals be. I like to show them within the environments that they're part of. And I'd like to show respect. And most of all, I like to convey a sense of kinship. And that is how I connect animals with the rest of the planet. And you know, we are caught in between. Yesterday, during the keynote, I, I said, you know, I, I like to connect the dots between animals, us, and the planet. You know, we're all caught up together in this amazing process of a living planet. What do you think the, big, the, the biggest uh, obstacle in, for people outside of yourself and people working with animals to kind of make, to connect those dots? I mean, what stands in the way from understanding, 
here's an animal that may be very different and you have no real contact with and, and how it you know affects the rest of us and, and the planet in a bigger sense. Is that uh, harder than it might seem to make these well, connections? I think uh, it's so easy for people to travel to exotic places these days. Uh, everybody wants to go to Africa and to Antarctica. Uh, but That's because you, there's no room left on uh, Mount Everest. They have to go <laughs> yeah, somewhere yeah, else. Exactly. <laughs> um, and most photographers get preciously little time on location. And then you start by remembering all the amazing images that you've seen that have taken photographers like myself months or years to come up with. And then you have to squeeze it all into one week or two weeks. So you end up with a lot of repetitive imagery. And it's not easy for photographers, including myself, to break through that, to establish something original. And I think that originality comes from spending time building up a relationship with your subject. And if you're in a studio, if you're a portrait photographer, if you're really good at it, and you're gregarious and you can lure personality out of your subject. That can happen in a matter of 10, 15, 30 minutes uh, if you're good at it. When it comes to animals, you have to give them time. Yeah. You, know, you can't play tricks with them. I was going to ask, time yeah. is the factor, but also this idea of, of preconceived notions. I imagine a lot of photographers who are going into this, they, they want to get that image of the, yeah. gr- the snarling tiger. And don't you have to kind of eliminate that as much as possible? Yeah, I think the, the burden that every photographer faces these days, no matter whether you're an amateur or a professional, is that we carry too many images around with us as part of our visual memory bank. And it is very difficult to put that all behind you and to be in the moment and to just focus on what is there. So you start basically from a disadvantage. You you have the burden of the past within you. And it's not easy to break through that, including for myself when I go to a new place, when I tackle a new subject. So what I do is I do a lot of research, non-visual research. I work a lot with scientists. I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of uh, literature research. I study a lot of art history so that I can approach subjects from, from a different angle before I begin to think about visual translations. But and I get that, and that's all important stuff, but yeah. I'm still kind of puzzled how <laughs> you manage to just take very casual, easy portraits of leopards, <laughs> lions, and animals that would sooner have you for lunch yeah. than sit in front of you for, for a picture. Well, I would dwell on that uh, on, uh, on the danger that is embedded in working with big animals too much. If you pay attention to their body language, if you know their behavior, then you know what the parameters are, how close you can be and what you should avoid doing. So that's uh, I think that's the least part of... Uh, yeah, of my concerns. What's kind of funny is that with people, it's important me doing portraiture. Yeah. It's the eye contact that's important. A lot of animals, you make eye contact, that's automatically considered yeah. a challenge. So, I mean, do you look through the camera? Because obviously you, you have to be yeah. careful about making contact with a lot of these animals. Yes, but uh, if you look at my work, including the images in the book Eye to Eye, because I published that a number of years ago as a Tashin book, you'll see that in the course of the book, uh, I convey intimacy not just on the basis of close-ups of animals looking into, uh, into my camera. I think you can also convey intimacy and authenticity, but in a wider context. And these days, I'm much more interested in letting animals recede into a background. And I think you can even convey intimacy when an animal is not looking at you, when you're applying a, uh, an over-the-shoulder perspective, mm-hmm. as if you're the observer sitting on the shoulder of the animal looking at the same scene as the animal is looking at. It's an interesting narrative device. I think ultimately it is all about point of view. And I think uh, many photographers get too excited about what they're seeing in front of them and they don't pause, they don't reflect on what it is. 
Yeah, when I teach courses in photography, we do that uh, from our studio in Santa Cruz regularly. You know, my methodology is to uh, show people how you can cultivate a dialogue with yourself. Uh, what is it you're looking at? Why are you interested in something? And only if you can become clear about giving answers to yourself, that is when you have the basis for beginning to frame the photograph. And how does that, that manifest itself in, in your work? And let's, let me kind of divide that one in the preparation aspect of it, but also, you know, why you're out there in the field. I mean, are you having this conversation with yourself and saying, oh, yeah. you know what, I, I think that's not the shot for me. I, I'm going to have to work it again All and the time. to figure it out. And, and, and of course, I get excited too. I mean, yeah. one thing that is wonderful about photography is that kinetic relationship when something happens and you're in the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can be an orgasmic experience. Um, mm -hmm. But we had Ron McGill on the show yesterday. We know about uh, <laughs> his, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. orgasmic experience. Yeah, we needed a exactly. cigarette after he left. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, but I think it's just as important to pull yourself out of the scene periodically and reflect on what it is you're seeing and what it is that excites you. Yeah. Well, in the, Otherwise, in the, you're just chasing the moment. Yeah, but in the, let's say, you know, I don't know if, if most of the projects you're working on now are what you call self-assigned or assigned, but when you're deciding to take on a project, and, and your projects are bigger, longer, they're not just going a week to Africa to get some shots, are you thinking of that narrative ahead of time as you're doing your research, as oh, you're looking sure. at how you want to take it on, yeah, you are. For sure. And to refer to the other end of my presentation, uh, Eye to Eye with Life, the Life Project, which is a holistic view of uh, life on Earth, yeah, that took us seven years. And we did a lot of research and we did a lot of reflecting on how we were building the narrative. Because it's a conceptual look at... Uh, at life through time. So, and we very deliberately chose the subjects and the locations for that. And yeah, that project isn't based on the big dangerous animals that you refer to. I became really fascinated by uh, looking at uh, smaller things, yeah, that, uh, that were really important in the evolution of all life. And ultimately, we included ourselves in it as well, ourselves as human beings, because we're part of this whole story. And um, yeah, here at Optic, yeah, we're, we're celebrating nature and outdoors photography. But um, for me, people are part of it. Yeah, we're, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not just avoiding the telephone poles and the fences around the protected areas. <laughs> and I show our impacts on the natural world just as much as um, as I celebrate the so-called beauty in nature. Mm -hmm. Beauty is only skin deep. <laughs> yeah, meaning comes Fur from yeah. digging a little deeper. Oh, yeah. And yeah. have you seen, I mean, can you kind of recognize an evolution in your own work uh, over the years that has, has gone maybe more toward the narrative and, and the bigger picture issues away from, let's say, getting a good shot of a leopard or... Uh, I've always been interested in the storytelling. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I started with an interest in nature and, a, uh, and an empathy for animals. But I trained myself as a photographer and I began to do editorial work. And you can't be a good editorial photographer if you don't know how to tell stories and if you don't have a passion for sharing stories. Hmm. That's a big word right there, that last part. There has to be a passion involved. Right. And that's become something that a lot of photographers are hungrier for now because uh, capturing images has become so easy. Oh, I the, know. You the just pick up your today, phone and touch the screen and yeah, your picture's done. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what's the next challenge? And that is meaning. Speaking about uh, uh, phones, what kind of cameras are you using for your work? I use all kinds of cameras these days. Okay. I use black cameras, I use white cameras, I use <laughs> big cameras and small cameras, wide lenses, So small lenses. You, you choose the tools for the project. Exactly. Okay. It's a toolbox. It, exactly. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. It's not a dichotomy uh, anymore. And I think that's really healthy. And uh, when I look at all the amazing tools that are available here at the conference, it's just astonishing. It can be a bit confusing because you wait six months and then the next great thing comes out. Mm. So... Uh, Do you try to get the, the tools you're using to, to fit 
your work, quote unquote, or when you're using something that may be new to you or a different type of lens, will you then kind of run wild with it first a little bit and experiment? Yeah, I experiment with yeah. new, uh, you know, with new cameras, new lenses, new new accessories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but I have a basic toolkit. Yeah. Ultimately, uh, it's not about the gear. Yeah. Although from time to time, there's certain specific things that I can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a tool, like it's a toolbox. Okay, it's a toolbox. If you need a Phillips screwdriver, you don't take a flathead. Exactly, it's really what it is. Yeah, but it all it's comes true. back. Yeah. To I did research on yeah. that, John. <laughs> it all comes back to yeah. What are you trying to do right. visually, and what are you trying to tell? Well, if you have that story, or you have this idea that you know or maybe you don't even know when you're hitting the field after you've done your research and you're ready to go. But when you're out there, um, let's say you're called by some incredibly beautiful image that really doesn't have to do with your story that you're, you're trying to work through. Will you kind of go over there and take a look at that image and take that photo? Or do you need to kind of keep your focus on, on the project? Of the course. Series? Yeah. I can be seduced very easily. <laughs> <laughs> Serendipity <laughs> is a wonderful thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, you can, you can think things through and you have your script, you have your storyboards, uh, and then things happen that you never knew hmm. would be possible. Hmm. And so you know, it's you, good to start off with a plan A so that you know when you see something different that the opportunities are very different you than what you imagine. You have to start with parameters, and exactly. then from there you just see where it goes. But you have, to, you have to have some framework to start with. Otherwise, you're just yeah. all over. And that is, uh, yeah, the more experienced you become as a photographer, yeah, the, the more you can act intuitively. Yeah, some of my best friends are street photographers, who supposedly are spontaneous and they're in the moment. But of course, greats like Bill Allard and Dave Harvey, they know what they're looking for. And they can see the elements come together and then it all... And, they, and they're ready when it happens. Or just before it happens. Uh, yeah. Better yeah. point, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Better and, and, point. And do you see that in your own work? I mean, can you see things forming? And maybe yes. as you're more experienced, they form a little slower because and it gives you that time to get Indeed. that. Yeah, that's so yeah. it's, uh, the way I think about it is it's, it's good to know what the, what the parameters are and what the elements are within which you insert yourself and then ultimately serendipity take us, takes over, whether it's light, whether it's a way a subject moves or some other unforeseen thing that happens and that is when an image comes alive. Because otherwise it just remains a pattern, it remains a still life. Now you obviously have a very deep, long relationship with photography. What got you started in the first place? What made you pick up a camera? I've always been interested in pictures. Yeah, they, they spoke to me from an early age. Okay. Long before I even had an inkling that I could become a photographer myself. Yeah, I grew up in the Netherlands, and uh, yeah, there were very few role models uh, at the time. And yeah, there were no workshops, there were no publications dedicated to how to take pictures, how to mm-hmm. become a photographer. So I had to... Yeah, figure things out figure for myself. Out. Yeah. I had to make my own mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's nothing like your yeah. own mistakes. Those are the best. <laughs> so, one thing, I mean, at least in terms of the, the, the output of your work, you have, you know, you can sell prints, you have books, you have your assignments. There's kind of different ways to receive feedback, let's put it that way, and the books are obviously in some ways a way to put the work that you most want out there. But what, uh, are you surprised by what pieces, what photographs are, um, how they're responded to? Are there any images that are, let's say you're, for prints, when people want to buy a print, uh, images that are always referred to or asked for or requested? And does that surprise you? Or do you kind of, can you kind of say, all right, I know this image is going to be great for print sales or, or this is going to be stock images, stuff like that. I mean, sure. Yeah. Yeah, there are, uh, it's wonderful to produce an image and sign your name to it and it's shipped off to a collector. And you know that that's an individual piece that ends up on the wall of somebody who will appreciate it over a long period of time. And do those tend to be a kind of image? Can you kind of, I mean, yeah, there's certain yeah. images that uh, that people request over and over again. And we have a, a series of limited edition prints, and other images are available in open editions. And then we combine images into exhibitions and books that have more of a theme. 
But you know what? What gives me just as much satisfaction, since you refer to output, you know, what happens um, is, you know, when I think of all the people who I've touched, you know, uh, as a mentor and as a teacher, and they go on, and some of them I've known for years. And when I think of how uh, how they looked at the world and what their pictures looked like when uh, they first showed them to me and what they're doing now, I'm just as proud of that. So it's, um, it's, I think that's one of the things that makes photography today so different from the way it used to be. You know, it used to be almost like a mysterious activity uh, literally like alchemy, right? There were a handful of practitioners and we would hide in dark rooms and you would mess around with stuff and it would take months or years before anybody would see the end result. And these days, you can capture an image and you can share it immediately. You could flip it in 30 seconds to the world. Yeah, and it's much more of yeah. a sharing activity and that is, I think, what, um, uh, what makes... Uh, creating photographs in the context of a workshop as a shared experience a very exciting process because you can all go to the same place and you know, on the basis of shared principles you go out and you do things and a couple of hours later you come back together and you look at each other's work in the course of an image review which we do in our studio or on location and then there's the wow factor my gosh I had no idea that you were looking at that and that you could do that. And I was there 10 feet away from you and I didn't see that. And when you're out on a workshop, do you shoot as well or do you kind of reserve that time to, just to be a teacher uh, or someone to, for soundboard? You know, yeah. uh, when people join us, I give myself and my time to them. It's, uh, I don't use workshops as a springboard to do my own photography. Yeah, I'm one, in order to do that, I want to be alone. What's next? Do you have, uh, are you given some place you're going to be going soon? Do you have a project that is coming out? You know, if people want to uh, keep their finger on the pulse of what we're doing, uh, I would say, first of all, check our, uh, check our Instagram because yeah, I'm quite active there. Is and, it uh, your name? Franz yeah. okay. And we, we, I like to tell substantive stories. So it's not just a picture here and a picture there. So do that. Uh, of course, go to our website. Um, yeah, recently I've become quite engaged with a couple of campaigns. Uh, one focused on bonobos, a very rare ape in the Congo that's not doing too well. Yeah, and, I saw some of your talk yesterday. Uh, yeah. A very rare creature in Iran, the Asiatic cheetah. The, uh, the Asiatic cheetah is at, at the brink of extinction and because of the geopolitical issues between Iran and the rest of the world, yeah, my friends have gotten embroiled, uh, and it's it's a tragic situation. So, I'm very active in uh, in an activist sense as well as as an artist. Mm -hmm. And um, and how often and is is the you know the political and economic issues behind the scenes kind of paramount uh, in terms of handling these conservation issues? I mean, when you're hearing about issues regarding poaching of animals yeah. or you, you find it in zones where there is conflict or where there is lack of the stability of a government. Look, the conflicts are everywhere, John. It's, uh, uh, you know, we, we're overwhelming the planet. Let's, let's, be, uh, let's be candid about it. Mm -hmm. there's, um, there's too many of us and fewer and fewer of them if we divide a planet between humans and other creatures. And um, uh, it's no secret anymore that um, you know, our planet is having a fever. It's warming up and, um, uh, and we're passing on a big mess to the next generation. So, and I've been documenting you know, that process of environmental change for decades. You know, my background is, uh, is as an environmental economist. So uh, I started you know, focusing on those things before I became a professional photographer. So, I mean, it's always there in my images and in my projects. So, sometimes I celebrate, sometimes I focus on things that really deserve action. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure um, to be with and you, And if guys. people want to see your work, the, uh, your Instagram is? At uh, Franz Lanting. Okay. Yep. And your website? Uh, Lanting.com. And um, what else can I 
tell people uh, we and have an exhibition life, creative life courses the creative yeah. life courses yeah. yes yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I've done a series of courses with Creative Life, mm-hmm. uh, one on landscape photography, most recently one on bird photography. Oh, yeah? And uh, if people can't join me physically in Santa Cruz, that's a good way to get a little closer to me. And uh, you can experience the way I think and the way I see. And uh, I hope you'll all become better photographers and more mm. passionate and more original. <laughs> there you go. That's it. Okay. Translating, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Terrific work. Great talking with you. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right. And so goes another great episode of the B&H Photography Podcast. If you are not a subscriber to the B&H Photography Podcast, we won't shame you. But... You can go over to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and Spotify. And you can always find us on the BH Explorer website, as well as the BH Photography Podcast Facebook group. And don't forget to tell them that Al sent you. For now, on behalf of Jason, John, and myself, thank you so much for joining us today.